0: It's Jesus' insightful commentary on spiritual warfare. And it's a little hint of His strategy, His plan. So listen here to God's Word. And Jesus came home, and the crowd gathered again to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. When His own people heard of this, they went out to take custody of Him... "...for they were saying, He has lost his senses. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and He casts out demons by the ruler of demons. And Jesus called them to Himself and began speaking to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand." If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he is finished. But no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. Amen. Our epistle reading is from Acts chapter 14. We'll read verses 8 through 18. <clears throat> This takes place in Lystra. Uh, And the part that's pertinent for us, well, all of it's pertinent for us, but the part we want to emphasize today is the way uh, the Apostle Paul, in speaking to the people there, what he characterizes has been the case among the nations up to that point in time. Listen here to God's Word. At Lystra a man was sitting who had no strength in his feet, lame from his mother's womb who had never walked. This man was listening to Paul as he spoke, who, when he had fixed his gaze on him and had seen that he had faith to be made well, said with a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. The man leaped up and began to walk. When the crowds saw what Paul had done, they raised their voice, saying in the Lyconian language, The gods have become like men and have come down to us. They really meant it, by the way. They thought that. So you know. And they began calling Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their robes and rushed out into the crowd, crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you, and preach the gospel to you, that you should turn from these vain things to the living God, who made the heaven, and the earth, and the sea, and all that is in them. In the generations gone by He permitted all the nations to go their own ways. And yet, He did not leave Himself without witness, in that He did good, and gave you rains from heaven, and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness even saying these things with difficulty, they restrained the crowds from offering sacrifice to them. Amen. Then our primary text today is from Revelation chapter 20, the first ten verses. This is one of those simple passages of Scripture that we're always glad to read because we get through them fairly rapidly. That's said with some Irony, shall we say. As we go through the sermon, we'll explain exactly where this piece fits in the whole structure and flow of Revelation. Listen here to God's Word. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil, and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he could not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were completed. After these things he must be released for a short time. Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus, and because of the Word of God, And those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and will reign with Him for, one th- for a thousand years. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be, re- will be released from his prison, and he will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war, the number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth, and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil, who deceived them, was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Amen. We'll take just a few moments to bow our heads and silently meditate upon God's Word, which we've read. Gracious God, we come before you in Jesus' name, and we want to learn of you. We want to know you and faithfully, that is to see you accurately, without distortion or things. We know that we're fallen, finite, and fallible. But Lord, clear our vision. Help us see, help us hear your word. And Lord, bring it to bear in our lives that we may live faithfully and fruitfully for you. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. I was hoping to sneak this sermon in while everyone was gone on vacation over the uh, Memorial Day holiday, down the shore or up the mountains or who knows where. But we have some people here and we have some people watching virtually. So, I guess I'm going to have to, uh, to preach it nonetheless to some people who are listening. So be it. I think we could all agree that there's a fair amount of confusion about millennialism. What in the world is millennialism? So, I thought we might have a dialogue about it, okay? A dialogue. Now, I'm going to supply the questions you ask, but then I'll answer the questions, all right? For just a little bit here. Um, So, here's here's the first question that I have you asking. How are millennial positions defined? And I say, they're defined by where the final coming of Christ is positioned in relation to the millennium. Okay? Is that a fairly clear answer? I hope it is. You understand that? Thus, we have what? We have premillennialism. These are folk who believe that Christ's final coming is before, that is, pre the millennium. All right? Yeah. Well, what about amillennial people? These are people who believe there is no literal millennium. And so, they have the negative. It's called the alpha privative in the Greek. if They have this neg- negative A in front of it. No millen- millennial. No millennium at all. It's like our un, that sort of thing. So, that's who the amillennialists are. And then, post-millennial people are folk who believe that Christ's final coming is after, post, the millennium. So, I hope that clarifies some of the confusion, which we all have about these pre, post, and all millennial stuff. Just, uh, it's very clear once you figure out what it all means. Now, please note, please note, each of these positions is to be regarded as acceptable orthodox position within the, the broader church. They've been accepted as, as uh, each of them, as orthodox and sound down through the centuries. So, uh, I'm going to espouse a particular position today But that's not to say that these other positions would not be accurate. And those people who hold the other positions, hope they don't say that Well, what I say is, is heretical and I should be booted out and tarred and feathered and hung by the neck from a lamppost and all that kind of stuff. So, all right. Well, I know what your next question is. It's this. What about the rapture and the tribulation and all that other stuff, right? Because when you talk about millennialism, that's the thing in the popular mind that always comes up. What about the rapture? What about the tribulation? How how's that all work together? Well, that is part of dispensationalism. And dispensationalism is a subset of premillennialism. Dispensationalism has only been around since about 1830 or 1840. Uh, others haven't known about it before that. It became dominant in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, and it remains the most widely held position. Premillennial dispensationalism is still widely, the most widely held position where people are. Uh, it's sort of the air we breathe, it's things we hear on the radio waves and see on, on the television. But here's the, here's the thing it's losing adherence rapidly. You say, well, how do you know that? Because I talk to people. <laughs> That's how I know that. I talk to pastors. You know, we're part of a whole group here, and I'm, I'm amazed of how, how many people are leaving premillennialism and even dispensational premillennialism. Well, here's your next question. Why is dispensationalism losing adherence? Here's the answer because it cries wolf way too often. Right? You know that? How many times in my lifetime have I heard, the Lord's coming now. The Lord's coming now. Or did, did you hear just a couple, three years ago about the, the, the three blood moon thing, right? Going to kick off all these end time events. And there's been things like that all through this. And we get all excited, we all get all head up, and then it turns out not to be true. Not to be accurate. Uh, And after a while, people just say, well, I, I don't need to be burned like that anymore. Right? Okay. Now here's the next question. Why does it cry wolf so often? Because it misreads and misunderstands revelation in particular. Okay? It misreads and misunderstands Revelation in particular. What's your next question? Well, how does it misread and misunderstand Revelation, right? Answer here's number one answer it does not read Revelation literally enough. Really? Here, I thought all these dispensational premillennial people were the literalists. Well, I'm saying that they're not literal enough. What do I mean? When you come across the words soon and near, in Revelation anyway, they don't mean soon and near. They don't mean soon and near to those to whom the prophecy was written, who was given. They only mean soon and near to us right here. How's that? That almost rhymes. (laughs) Yeah, and so it's always right here where I am. Oh boy, it's going to happen right now. And so, they they, they misunderstand it. And and, uh, so, here's the second thing then, what I already said before, people get burned out by all, this is the time pronouncements year after year. Now, here's my answer number two. That was answer number one. Answer number two, apparently it hasn't taken hermeneutics 201 yet. Now, you have to have been here over the last several months we did hermeneutics 101 and hermeneutics 201, and we talked about that. So, let's do a little refresher course for us. Hermeneutics 201, a summary, says that there's always, with each text, <clears throat> there's a then and a there where it's written to real people at a real point in time. You must always make sure you understand the Bible is grounded in historicity. It's written to real people in real time with real concerns. Now, You say, well, the Bible was completed thousands of years ago. True. Well, how can it have any relevance for us now? Well, because if you know the there and then, here's the next point. There's always a here and now application to folk, no matter where they live, in terms of chronology, that is in time, no matter where they live in terms of geography on the face of the earth. We need to know that. We said that's what hermeneutics tool one is about. It's a basic thing. All right. Uh, let's give a specific application. Revelation 19, 11 through 21. Uh, here's where you folks would see A, that the, each section we need to understand as a part of the final coming of Christ. They see it that way, and, and so they see all those things as, as at the second coming. Uh, B, they don't see that Revelation 4 1 through 16 17 describe Christ's judgment on the nation of Israel in the events of AD 66 through 70 and the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. They don't see that at all. They, they're completely disconnected from the then and there. They don't see that. And so you're going to get a distorted vision if you don't. Take the then and there, all right? That means they can't apply the here and now. So, point C. They don't see the events of 66 and 70, the then and there, serving as the paradigm for God's dealing with the nations from that time forward. All those things that happen there are a paradigm for how God deals with the nations down through history. So, for instance... Give some examples. They don't understand that Christ on the white charger, first part of Revelation 19:11, and maybe verse 16 or so. Uh, they don't see, understand that Christ on the white charger properly. They don't understand the horrible slaughter of wars. That's an ongoing reality, and they don't see the casting of into the lake of fire of the many beasts and false prophets as a depiction of God's ongoing judgment on nations down through the centuries. All those things are one facet of what God does perennially down through history, and they point toward the final coming, but it's not the final coming. Now, here's the thing that they neglect to observe. Uh, This is point E, I think. They neglect to observe that the dragon is not thrown into the lake of fire yet in Revelation 19. False beast, false prophet, or beast and prophet, false prophet are. No dragon is thrown the lake of fire yet. All right, next question. If dispensationalism and premillennialism are losing adherence, where are they going? Answer number one. Well, some had no true faith. And so, they, they become nuns, that is knowns, nuns. Or liberals, liberal Christians with no true faith. Or eager members of the Freedom From Religion Foundation. They end up writing all these columns that you see in magazines and hear on the news. I was raised in a fundamentalist home, and now I've been, I've been delivered. Right? Anyone who believes that stuff must be insane. Right? They're the ones who write that. Who say those things. Who, who, and you could make a, you know, good money doing that. You make lots of appearances. So, uh, that's where some of them go. But here's answer number two. Some had true faith. Many had true faith. These are just the people who've left. I'm not talking about all the people. Some had true faith, and they became amillennialists. Yeah. That's what I've, I've discovered. I could tick off names of pastors in our area for whom that's the case. They've talked to me about it. I'm not talking one or two. They've talked to me about it. So, they become amillennialists. Well, what's the next question? Why do they become amillennialists? Here's why. Because amillennialism takes the Bible seriously, has a solid view of good and evil, and at least they don't have to become postmillennialists <laughs> The other option. They don't have to go that far, at least yet, for now. <laughs> it's, it's the best option they have that they can see that's going on given they're going to leave that. And so, they find out that there's, uh, one, no more crying wolf all the time and getting burned. Delivered from that. Uh, And then, number two, amillennialists get hermeneutics 101 applied correctly. They allow for literal, figurative, and other genres to be read literally. That is, as intended by the writer, who is ultimately the Holy Spirit who inspired the writer. So, they allow the different genres to speak as they were intended to do. That's the literal meaning. Well, here's the question you're asking. What do all think is going to happen to the world? Answer number one. They believe the kingdom of God, that is the church, will continue to grow and grow throughout all of history. That's where they are. We say, hallelujah. That's right. Now, another part of that, answer number two, they also believe wickedness will continue to grow and grow throughout history. So that finally, here's number three answer, they believe history ends with a big battle between the forces of Christ and the forces of the devil. Christ's final return comes at the apex of that battle. Judgment Day takes place and eternal destinies are sealed. How's that? We all say, Amen. It's good. Uh, here, so, here's, I already said, what, the next question I'm, I'm assuming that you're going to ask is, is this a biblically and theologically okay position for someone to hold? My answer is yes. In fact, it probably has been the most adhered to position over the course of the past 2,000 years by the majority of Christians. It just hasn't been the case in the last 150 years, Okay. But down through the centuries, amillennialism has probably been the one position that most Christians have held throughout their life. Uh, Here's the next question. Why aren't you an amillennialist then? Right? Don't you think that? Well, if you say all this, how come come you're not an amillennialist? Actually, I have been an amillennialist. I've also been a Premillennialist, I've also been a dispensational premillennialist. I've been all those things. For the past couple of decades, though, I've been a postmillennialist. Here's your next question. Okay, I'll take the bait. What do postmillennialists mean or believe about how the world ends? Because that's where we're going to get to. My answer is I thought you'd never ask. <laughs> Yeah, I didn't think you'd ever ask that question, so I want to try to explain it to you in some very brief terms. First of all, post-millennialists believe there will be a millennium. They're not all millennialists. They think there really is a millennium. Number two, like other millennials, this is pre, post, and all, all the millennials believe the conception of Jesus was the game changer. When God became a man, that changed everything. We need to know that. Did indeed God become a man. When Jesus was conceived in Mary's womb, boom! It was all done. It had to be worked out, but it was, it was, He was coming. Number three, Jesus is the rock cut without hands in Daniel chapter 2. It says that rock is destined to fill the entire earth. And so post millennialists believe that the gospel will be triumphant, not just proclaimed, but triumphant in every nation. Point number four. As a consequence, there will be a long period of great peacefulness and godly productivity. It will last a long time. Not everyone will be a Christian. But Christian values and worldviews will be held by the vast majority of folk worldwide. And then at the end, at the end of that time, that long prosperous good time, the devil will be loosed again to deceive the nations. And there will be a great conflict between the people of God and the people of the nations under the deceptive power of the devil. Great conflict. Well, guess what? Christ returns at the apex of that. It says, Christ's final return comes at the apex of that battle. Judgment Day takes place, and eternal destinies are sealed. Okay? So, here's your next question. How can anyone believe that when the history of the world in our own day is so contrary to what you've said? How can anyone believe that, what I've just proclaimed, uh, when the history of the world in our own day is so contrary to what you said? The answer because of what the Bible teaches, especially in the light of hermeneutics 101 and 201. Your next question, can you give me an example of that teaching from the Bible? Hey, wait, that's what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm supposed to be preaching from Revelation 20. Excuse me, I'll get back to you later. Okay? That was a long introduction <laughs> to Revelation 20 what I wanted to lay those things out. Yeah, yeah, y'all better look at your watch, because I got another whole page and a half of notes. My goodness, John, what's going to go on here? So, we need to know where Revelation 20 is situated in Revelation. And we won't go through the whole book, don't worry about it. But we saw last week, we talked about there, after the, at the marriage feast of the Lamb, when it proclaims that in the first part of chapter 19, Uh, following that are seven I-saw passages. These I-saw passages, they're they're all introduced that way. They each show a different perspective. It's like you're looking through a telescope at the same event, but each one has a different perspective. And so, they see things differently. All right? But they're all focusing on from AD 70 all down to Judgment Day. All right? Each of these I-saw passages. And so, we need to make sure we understand that. That's why... (laughs) Revelation 20, 20 is part of that. So, uh, the first one is Revelation nineteen eleven through sixteen. I saw. What did he see? They got it up there. Yes, uh, it's the marching of Christ through the nations down through history. It's not the final coming of Christ, but it certainly prefigures his final coming. What is described there happens many times, has happened many times down through history. We have a lot of people here from Germanic background. There was a time when God raised up a fellow named Boniface and sent him from Ireland over to the German areas. And he came there, Christ came with him, and he preached the Gospel. And they said, well, what about they had this big, big old idol that they kept there that they worshipped? And what about this? Boniface took his axe, chopped it down, and made a chapel out of the wood. <laughs> yeah! And so they said, oh my goodness, you mean our God didn't defend Himself? Boniface did this. And so God marches through. History has done this. Genesis, or Revelation 19, 17 through 18. Those two verses show the great slaughters that happen with unfortunate regularity. When God judges nations, people die. It's horrible. And you can go almost, you don't have to go 100 years by 100 years. You can almost go uh, decade by decade and see the horrible things that occur in these battles. God marches through. Then Revelation 19, 19 and 21 The beasts and false prophets are judged. Uh, They're dispatched regularly. Uh, I mentioned here Saddam Hussein, Osama bin Laden, Pol Pot, Mao Zedong, Idi Amin. And they were an immediate. We wish it was much more immediate, but they died. You know, Idi Amin died in peace. But it's going to happen. He's going to be judged by that. So, uh, notice the beasts and false prophets are judged But there's one thing you need to know, the dragon is not mentioned in this passage, where all these are judged. The dragon's not mentioned at all. He's not judged that way yet. He will be. In fact, in our text today, which we'll get to about 1215, according to my watch. uh, Revelation 20, 1 through 3, we'll read this today, it's the binding of Satan. This is a crucial component to how you're going to think millennially the binding of Satan. What does that mean? What happened and what did not happen there? Revelation 24 through 6 is the ministry of the church down through the ages. We need to know about that. Then Revelation 27 through 10, it's the judgment of the devil, the serpent, Satan, all those names are there of him. And, uh, uh, this is not an I saw passage. This is a transition from peering down through history. Now we're going to reach the end of history. And after this, the last two final I saw passages the first one will be the great white judgment throne, it'll be negative. And the second will be the heavenly Jerusalem coming down, the positive one. Okay, so you can see all the way through it, and boom, then you see the rest. So, yeah, Revelation 20 11 through 15 is a great white throne judgment, it's negative. Then you have Revelation 21, 1 to 8. The heavenly Jerusalem coming down is positive. Okay. You're very patient. Only a few people have fallen asleep. I don't know how many people out there have fallen asleep in the other place. How many got to go to the bathroom already, huh? Yeah. You don't know about that. So let's go back and work our way rapidly through Revelation 21 through 10. First thing is the binding of Satan when was Satan bound? You have to determine that. He was bound at the cross. The cross is the victory. The devil is a defeated foe. Jesus said, it is finished. The Apostle Paul writes in Colossians 2, that He took our certificate and nailed it to the cross and made public display of Him. Consider our passage from Mark 3 that we read today. The binding of the strong man. That's what Jesus did on the cross. He bound the strong man. He, he lays it out. That's his strategy. And he does it. We'll see why. Number, I say, in what way was Satan bound? Now, the text is very specific just so you should be aware of this. A lot of folks are they think the devil's bound and put away and they understand it, that that well he's just gone off the scene. That's not true. It doesn't say that. What it says is that he's bound <clears throat> in his ability to deceive the nations. He's no longer able to deceive the nations where they're blind or oblivious to the gospel. Consider our text from Acts 14 that we read today. Paul preaches that he tells you people you know in times past God let you go your own way. He lets you wonder where you would. But now he's coming, here comes Paul to you that you might hear the gospel. And guess what? There are going to be people in Leicester who believe. Something that had to happen for thousands of years. There are still people in Leicester who believe. From the resurrection to today, people from all variety of people groups have believed in Christ. Something unprecedented before the cross. It did not happen. A little smatter here, a little smatter there. But across the board, no, there weren't all kinds of different nations and people groups coming in. So, the binding doesn't mean Satan is not active in other ways. It's just that one key component is gone. Now, I want you to note that little word in verse 3. He must be, re- that is the devil, must be released for a short time. The must is there. It's in the Greek. It's, it's there. Uh, we need to know this. The devil is always under God's power. He can't do anything without God's permission. Now he's self-deceived about his own power and his own abilities and he seeks to deceive us about that as well. But (laughs) he's under God's power all the time. From the beginning it has been. When he tempted Jesus in the wilderness, I have people asking about that. When He said, see here the kingdoms of the world. I'm going to give them to you if you bow down and worship me. And Jesus says, no, I shall worship the Lord your God alone. Well, were the kingdoms of the world Satan's to give? The answer is no. There's someone else who's king of kings, lord of lords, who rules over the nations. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. You've got all through the Old Testament it says that. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, right? Yes, amen. Come on, say yes to that. And and what the devil does, he comes to us regularly, this is a strategy, and makes great promises to us that sound good. Oh, boy, oh, boy, boy, I want to rule the nations. And then you buy into it, and not true. For God's own purposes, He must be released after a thousand years. Okay? It's not that He's made a demand and He must be released. No, by God's own purposes, He must be released. And the purpose is to bring about His final judgment. <laughs> it's just if you want to know. We'll preach about that later. So, this, verses 1-3 through 3 of Revelation chapter 20, is one perspective we must hold on to, just like we have to hold on to all the other perspectives as well. Now, how about the ministry of the church? Uh, Revelation 20, 4-6. It says, you'll reign with Christ for a thousand years. Now, look at verses 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7. What's the one word that's in all of those verses, in each of those verses? What, in verses 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7, what, what's the one word that's there all the time? A thousand. Right? Thousand, 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 thousand. What do we know? About a thousand. We know that a thousand years does not mean a thousand years. Hallelujah. <laughs> After I've emphasized that, yeah, you mean it doesn't mean a thousand, it does not mean a thousand years. You know that and I know that. Because we've been through hermeneutics 101. Right? We didn't flunk that. I hope we didn't. Here's Hermeneutics 101. Flash it up there. There we got it. Texts must be read in the manner in which they were intended. The literal meaning is the intended meaning. If you want to say literal, it means what the author meant. We're originalists when it comes to the Constitution. Why aren't we originalists when it comes to the Bible? Right? Now let me give you an example. Uh, This is from Uh, Psalm 50, verse 8. Here's the verse. You all remember this. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I got a question for you. How many hills are there in the world? I couldn't find a number. I tried to find out how many hills there are in the world. That's what I'm trying to find. But I did find out how many mountains there are in the world. And there are certainly fewer mountains than hills. You know, the United States has, is this up there? Yeah, there we go. Look at that. The United States has 73,389 named mountains. That's not counting Ingram's Hill. (laughs) You know, over here. (laughs) Switzerland has 9,944 mountains. Italy has 28,214 named mountains. These are mountains that have names attached to them. The whole world has 1,809 named mountains. May I suggest to you that a cow that's found on any of those mountains belongs to the Lord. Right? And that's what the psalmist is trying to say in Psalm 50, verse 8. That's, that's the literal meaning. Just so you know. Don't get hung up. Did that make sense? I hope it made a little bit of sense. I'm not sure. We'll see. Uh, Now, we know that 144,000, we read about earlier in Revelation, does not mean 144,000, right? We've talked about that. The 144,000 refer to all the elect of God. Old Testament and New Testament. It's 12, like the 12 tribes of Israel. The 12, the 12 disciples. The 12 plus 12, well 12 times 12 times 1,000. A whole bunch. Refers to all the elect down through history. We're not Jehovah Witnesses when it comes to the 144,000. We understand that. Now, they're going to reign with Christ for a thousand years. For a long time, is what it means. Until He comes back. Now, the reign is based on the new birth. This is the first resurrection. Uh, It says in here, in our text, that these are the martyrs and the faithful witnesses, the folks who don't receive the mark of the beast. Uh, And Not that there's a literal mark. Uh, So, here's what Jesus said in John 5, verse 25. Jesus is speaking, truly, truly I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead who hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Who's that? That's Tim Lighty. That's Juliana Capusta. That's now the message I'm good to see for a while. I haven't seen her for a long time. That's, that's, that's you. For you were dead in your trespasses and sins, according to Ephesians 2, according to God's Word all the way through. But those who were dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and live. New life, new birth, born again. Why that language? Because you have a new identity, a new being. Now Jesus goes on and talks about another time and says do not marvel at this for an hour is coming he's looking down through the long scope of history he does not say it now is the first one's the first resurrection an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth those who did good to a resurrection of life those who committed the evil to a resurrection of judgment. That's the second resurrection. That's what he's referring to there, is the end of time. Uh, now, this reign, <laughs> by the way, the only people who, well, she read about all of those uh, 24 elders, they're the ones who sit on the throne. So we're, we're reigning with Christ. I don't have time to do this now. I wish I did. But this is Ascension Sunday. Christ has been raised uh, to the heavens. He's enthroned. He's seated at the right hand of God. And you can read all through the Scriptures where we are seated beside Him. Read Ephesians 1, uh, maybe 19 through 23. We're seated with Christ. We're there. We reign with Him. So, we need to know that. Now, all this reigning with Christ and the glory that God's going to bring to the whole earth is not based on political, educational, financial, or any other means. But it's based on what? All the Bible for all of life. That's what it's based on. That no matter where you are, no matter who you are, no matter what your job is, that you take all the Bible and apply to all the areas of your life. And so, you will not follow the dictates of your professional uh, uh, company, or whatever they call those, Uh, not committee, what am I looking for? Uh, Society, your professional society, if they tell you to believe or do something wrong. You'll say, no, I'm an architect, but I'm not going to do this. I'm a teacher, but I won't do that. I'm a preacher, but I won't do this. Right? All the Bible for all of life. That's how that happens. Now, uh, we believe that the Great Commission is true. Here's what it says. Jesus came up and spoke to His disciples, this is just before His ascension, saying, all authority. Where? All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. That is, there is no other higher authority at all. Go, therefore, and make disciples. Make disciples of all the nations. Teaching them. What is this? Making disciples, what does that mean? It means teaching them to observe, that is, to do all that I have commanded you. That's our task. That's our goal. Not merely proclamation. Certainly proclamation, but proclamation is not sufficient. It's not only that, but it's, it's teaching them. It's discipling them to observe all that God has commanded us. Now, you know, we believe Jesus really meant that. We believe that God still has that as His purpose. And much progress has been made. Here's some totals from the Joshua Project. Uh, the total number of people groups in the world, there's 10,429 with a total population of 7.67 billion people on the earth now. Now, the next number is the total number of unreached people groups in the world is 4,605 with a total population of 3.19 billion. The B. So we've reached a lot of people. The gospel's come to a lot of nations, a lot of, a lot of places. And there's, it's not it's not to yet, but it's come there. That means that 41.6 percent of the world's population has no gospel witness. God intends for all nations to honor the name of Jesus. You hear. of the world's population has no gospel witness. Let's take the country of India as an example. India has 159 people groups of over 1 million peoples. There's distinct ethnic people groups over 159 with more than 1 million people in them. 133 of those people groups are unreached. There are hundreds more people groups of less than a million that are unreached as well. Now, for those who are visiting who are watching somewhere else, we at Lydie's Church are doing a, 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 this year an a outreach to the, uh, providing for the outreach to the Irakula people. It's an unreached people group in India. We're trying to fund that so for, for three years, the next three years, there'll be ministry there that'll take the name of Jesus there where people will believe. And the gospel will be planted. Now, it needs, they need to be discipled yet, and that'll happen in due time. So, that's the, the ministry of the church. Now, what about the demise of the devil in Revelation 27 through 11? It says, when the thousand years are done. So, the thousand years doesn't mean indefinitely. It's not infinity. It's when they done, boom, there's a point in time when, they, when that ends. All the parables of Matthew 13 have the good and bad together. And what always, I couldn't quite understand was, he always takes the bad out first. And my dispensational theology said, well, we're going to get raptured, the good guys are going to get out. How does that happen? How does that work? How did he mess up the parables like that? I thought Jesus knew better than that. Have you ever thought that? (laughs) I have. Well, because this in Revelation 20 looks a lot like the parables of Matthew 13 and not like what I thought before. Uh, It looks a lot like eternal hell and eternal bliss as well. Okay, I'm ready to stop. I know you're full of questions, so let me put a couple of them up here. Question number one. Actually, it's the only question I'm going to do because I don't have any more written out. You have more, but this is your one question, okay? Why does my millennial position matter? Can't I be a pan-millennialist and trust it will all pan out in the end? Right? You've all, we've all heard that. We've all said, oh yes, we're all confused by this, and I'm just a pan-millennialist. It's all going to pan out at the end. Well, answer number one, it will all pan out in, in the end because Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So we know it will, all right? But number two, but what is your vision for the world and those around you? Will you strive to do your part in bringing all the Bible for all of life to your sphere of influence? In terms of your personal life, your family life, your community life, your vocational life. That's what we're called to do. And your millennial view will help shape that. If you think the world's going to hell in a handbasket, you won't do it. Look, here's answer number three. Or do you think that we're just polishing the brass and rearranging the chairs on the Titanic because the world's going to hell in a handbasket? Why bother trying at all? Right? Ah. God has raised up and taken down all kinds of nations. He has His plan. He has His purpose. That's what He's going to do. He calls us to embrace that. Now, I was glad for the last song we sang today in the opening part. Here's my answer number four. Our vision should be that of Habakkuk. This is in verse 14 of chapter 2. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. That is, you'll know it, you'll understand it, say yes, you'll be a disciple. The knowledge of the glory of the Lord, just as the waters cover the sea. That's our vision. Uh, we still have several thousand people groups to reach. I don't expect it to be accomplished in our lifetime. I don't know when it will be accomplished. Now, God can do anything, but we got, you know, we can't even get to North Sentinel Island. The last guy who tried to get there about two years ago now got shot. There's a people group right there. Never heard the gospel. Lots of others as well. And Jesus is intent on having people from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation worshiping Him. We're all millennials now. We have been all along, just didn't know it. you got a millennial position. you got some kind of an idea of how this is all going to turn out. So, we're trying to shape that by the way the Scriptures teach us. Amen.